Good morning. It's good to see you here today. It's a, it's a good, sorry, I'm having technical difficulties here. One second. There we go. Okay. It's good to be here for a Sunday. Um, I'm very glad to see everybody today. Unfortunately, I'm going to be gone for the next five consecutive Sundays, uh, but it's wonderful to be here. We have a few that are traveling today, and uh, I miss seeing them. I'm sure you do too, uh, but we're glad that you're here. And as Brother Nathan said, this is the best day of the week. This is the day that we get to focus on things that are spiritual and see one another and be encouraged by one another. Uh, and I hope that you're encouraged this morning by the lesson. We're going to continue some thoughts. We've been talking about rightly dividing the Word of God for several months now. And the last time that, we, that I had the opportunity to speak and we uh, talked about that subject, we were noting that the Old Testament's authority has been done away with. That that was a section of time when God had given a law to the children of Israel that they were to follow, and they were to follow it to the letter of the laws, so to speak. And we noticed that as Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled not only the law, but also the prophets. And in doing that, he took the authority of that law, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, we still have that law. We can still read that law. We can still learn some things from that law, but it's authority for our life has been done away. And so today we're going to talk about some of the things that we still learn from the law or learn from the Old Testament because those things still have value for us. And we're going to start in John chapter 4 uh, that Dad read for us this morning. Some of these things will be familiar to those of you who are here and have been here for our Wednesday night studies. Uh, we've also studied some of this in a study group that we have uh, going weekly. So I apologize for some of the repetition uh, but maybe this will give it a little bit of a new face. So in the reading that we read this morning from John chapter 4, we see an encounter that Jesus had with a woman of Samaria. Now, to help us understand what's going on there, uh, that woman of Samaria, that's a very important uh, element of that story, a very, very important detail of that story as we look at the idea of being a Samaritan. This was a woman who uh, the Jews looked down on. They would have looked at her as a half-breed. That's not my word. That's the word that they would have used. They often referred to the Samaritans as dogs. And what we need to all understand is the Samaritans were actually Jews. They were Jewish people. And we even know that God recognized them as Jews because Philip was sent to them in Acts 8 before the Gentiles were ever called. So God looked at them as some of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, something that's also important to understand about why the Jews looked down on them, and I'm not saying it was right for them to look down on them, but there's a reason why they did. And the reason is because when the kingdom was divided, and the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, to the south, and the other ten tribes to the north, those ten tribes strayed away from God in a lot of different ways. But mostly, their biggest problem was that they fell into idolatry. And some of the kings of Israel encouraged that idolatry. So they were worshiping false gods. And we have to understand that as Jesus begins to talk to her. This is where this woman lives. In an area that's been heavily influenced by idolatry. Where they've taken idol worship and they've taken Judaism. And they've tried to kind of mix them together. And so even though they had some truth. They also had a lot of lies that were mixed in with that truth. So Jesus is going to make a statement to this woman here in a moment that if you don't understand all that, you might not understand what he means. So that's why I want to kind of give us a little bit of information before we dig into this text. So just revisiting, this woman is talking to Jesus um, about worship. And what prompted that was Jesus brought up something in her life that she obviously didn't want to talk about. 
because uh, they're just having a conversation. And Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. He says, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And so giving that information, she immediately starts a religious debate because, you know, that's, that's somewhat, you know, kind of human nature. Someone brings up something you don't want to talk about. You just divert the conversation to something else that you'd rather talk about. So that's why she brings up this statement. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and now is, or when the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So let's pick up some of this text for a moment. She says to Jesus, our fathers, that is our ancestors, worshiped on this mountain. This mountain being close to the city of Sakaar, uh, it was a place, a geographical place where worship took place. And then she recognizes that the Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we want to worship. And you might remember from our, some of our former studies that there were actually three times during the year that all of the male Jews were called to go to Jerusalem for a particular feast, or uh, where it would be the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, um, uh, or the Feast of Pentecost, as we call it. And if you think about what this woman's saying, she's saying, what's the truth about this? Where's the right place to worship? Well, is that an important question? Well, it was in that day. It was an important question. But Jesus says this to her, you don't know what you worship. Now, let's think about that. Imagine all of your life, you spent a lot of your time and attention going and worshiping God in some place. And then you have a chance to talk to the Messiah and say, okay, what's the right place to worship? And he says, you don't know the what of worship. Do you suppose that crushed her? I mean, that would be hard to hear, right? Because here's, here's the reality. If you don't know what you worship, where is irrelevant? She didn't understand who God was. And again, she's tied up in some of this idolatry that's been uh, mixed in with their culture from not only the kings of Israel, but also from the Assyrians who had taken them captive a while back. And so this woman is confused about who God is. And if she doesn't understand who God is, this religious debate over the where really doesn't matter. Now, again, it mattered, where mattered, and Jesus points that out to her. He says, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And he goes on to say this, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, what they had a problem with was trying to mold God into something different than who he actually was. And Jesus reveals to her who God truly is. Do you see the words that he uses? The Father. That probably was a very foreign concept to her. But Jesus says this, the Father is the one who's worshipped. And God, the Father, is a spirit. And those who worship, it's not going to be about a place, it's not going to be about geography, it's not going to be about location. He says true worship the worship God is seeking is from the inner man. It's spiritual. It's spiritual worship. But he also says truth matters. He's not overlooking her question or ignoring it. The truth matters. It mattered that God said worship in Jerusalem. It mattered that God said go to Jerusalem. That mattered. But she had two things that she was very confused about. And he tried to help her understand you don't know who God is. Let's talk about worship for a moment. What does that word mean? We use that word a lot, don't we? Worship. What does it mean? So this word that's translated worship 
It comes from a Greek word, proskuneo, which means to kiss, like a dog licking his master's hand. To fawn or crouch to, that is prostrate oneself in homage, do reverence to adore. Dad and I and the girls went up to Arkansas and uh, we went and saw Dewey Watkins. And I don't know, some of y'all probably met him at Wheeler's summer meeting last year. Uh, Dewey lives way out in the mountains. And we pull up to the house and we come out and he comes out to greet us. And then here come his dog, Lori, and she ran around the house to greet us too. And she ran up right to our feet and Dewey looked at her and she got as low to the ground as a dog could possibly get. You know why? Because she knew who the master was. And that's what worship is. That's actually what the literal word means. To lick a master's hand like a dog or to fawn or to crouch or the word prostrate oneself. That word prostrate means to fall down on the ground at someone's feet. And what I want us to understand is the word worship in and of itself is a sign of humility. It's a showing that you are great and I am not. And I think we slap the word worship. We label a lot of things as worship that really aren't worship. Just because you slap the name Jesus on something doesn't mean it's worship or that he's happy with it or he accepts it. Worship is a sign of humility. It's a showing of who is master and who is not. That's worship. And so don't lose that. As we talk about worship today, this is what worship truly is. So I want to think about some of the things from the Old Testament, and I want to take you back just for a moment to the time that the children of Israel spent in Egypt, because you want to talk about knowing who God is. Imagine, I try to imagine myself being in Egypt when they were enslaved and seeing some of the things that they saw, and wouldn't it have been incredible to have been there and to have seen some of the things that they saw? I mean, you see the rivers not turn red, but literally turn into blood. You think, well, I want to see that. <laughs> be kind of scary. I mean, it would. It'd be frightening, wouldn't it, to see rivers actually turn to blood and all the, the sea life in them die from that. And it, you know, that says that the river stunk. But you know what? That was the power of God. And they got, to, they got to witness that. They saw a plague of locusts. We think we've seen a plague of bugs in our life. They saw a plague of locusts that, that would have been so thick it would blot out the sunlight. It came through and just devoured all their crops. They, they saw darkness that it says was so thick it could be felt. I don't, I don't even know what that means, but that's a thick darkness, right? They saw a lot of amazing things. You know, even after God uh, brought in the plague of the death of the firstborn and they were escaping from Egypt, they got to the point of the Red Sea and they were pinned in on all sides. I mean, there was nowhere for them to go and they knew it and they started crying out and saying, did you bring us all the way out here just to die? And Moses says, stand still and see the salvation of God. And as they watched, this sea parts ways. And the land dries up, and they walk through the sea. I mean, that'd be amazing, right? I want to ask you something. Do you, do you think if you had been there and seen those things that you'd have a pretty good idea of who God is? Do you think you'd ever forget seeing those things? I mean, we have significant things happen in our life that we just can't unsee, right? We, we always remember them. You wouldn't forget something like that, right? So they get through the Red Sea, and they cry out to God, and they praise God with a song and sing about his greatness and about his salvation. And as they're traveling, they get to the base of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and Moses doesn't come back. And so you start to get anxious. And you say to Moses, brother, you say, hey, Aaron, where's Moses? What's happened to Moses? And you get worried. And so you say, Aaron, 
We don't know what's happened to Moses. And so we want you to make us a God. That's kind of one of those plot twists you really don't see coming, right? The question is why? I mean, you know this cow did not part the sea. It did not perform all these miracles. It didn't deliver you out of bondage. Why a cow? I'll tell you why. Because they went back to what they knew. They went back to what was familiar to them in life. They lived in Egypt. And I think sometimes we get the wrong impression about the children of Israel being in Egyptian bondage. Like the whole time they know who Jehovah is and they're worshiping Jehovah God. They were not. They were not. They were just as caught up in the idol worship of Egypt as the Egyptians were. And we know this because Joshua calls them out on it in Joshua 24. He says, you've got to make a choice. You can worship the God that has brought you out of bondage, or you can go back and worship the gods that your fathers worshipped in Egypt. But you've got to make a choice today. This was the God they were familiar with. You know what it says they did? Aaron told them, bring me all your gold. And they brought the gold to him. And it says that he melted it down and he fashioned it into a calf. And then they rose up to play. That's what it says. They rose up to play. What's that mean? They worshipped their God. You know why they made this calf? Because this calf doesn't talk. It doesn't have a will. It doesn't have commandments. You can worship this calf any way you want. It's not going to tell you any difference. It's not going to be displeased. It's a calf. They worshipped this God how they wanted to. They said, these be our gods. When Moses got there, he was mad. He said, Aaron, what would you do? And he said, well, you know, the people... Well, where did this calf come from? Well, they gave me this gold, and I threw it in the fire, and poof, out came a calf. He wasn't buying it. <laughs> he, knew, he knew he was lying. I mean, the guy had to have some skill just to mold gold. I couldn't mold a calf out of gold, but it doesn't matter. Their efforts don't matter. Their sincerity doesn't matter. What matters is they built a God that is not a God. This is not God. But you know, if you build your own God and your own imagination, you can do whatever you want. You know, that's not very different from what we see in the book of Romans. See, in the book of Romans, they did the same thing. They wanted God to be molded into an image that was formed by their imagination and their desires. In Romans 1.23, it says, They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to their uncleanness and their lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves and exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, if you look at what he's saying about the Gentiles, there's some very telling things about their lifestyle. He says they were burned in their lust toward one another. He said they were dishonoring their bodies. He said because of the desires and the lust in their hearts, God gave them over to uncleanness. You know why? Because God looked down and he said, look, if you want to turn me into something I'm not, you want to worship something that, that is not me, I'm not going to stop you. He gave them over. He gave them up. They wanted gods that they could worship their way. They wanted a God that said, you know what, if you want to live in depravity and you want to live in the lust of your flesh, you want to live in homosexuality, you can have that God. But that's not me. But that's the God they created. And they rose up and they played. That's what they did. They rose up and they played. They worshiped the creature more than the creator. Now, we would never dare do that, would we? We, we would never make a God, would we? But you know, sometimes we do that in our mind. You ever heard somebody say, well, my God. They said, well, my, I had a lady one time, I was, I was preaching on God's justice, and she came up to me after church. She was upset with me, and I, I didn't know what was going on. She said, she, I mean, she was upset. She, she got to me, she said, my God never killed anybody. I was like, I don't know who your God is. I mean, has God ever killed someone? 
I mean, it's all through the Bible. Yeah, God, God has killed people. He's taken their life. He smote them. But she couldn't imagine that her God would ever do something like that. You know why? Because she doesn't know who God is. She decided who God was. She had formulated a God in her mind, and that picture of God was the one she was going to hold on to. And this is what happens sometimes. People say, well, my God would never tell me that I can't do something that would make me happy. Well, my God would never be upset about that. Well, my God accepts me for the way that I am. Well, my question is, is your God the God? Or is it just an idol that we have formulated in our imagination? Because one thing is true, God will not be created in our image. We are created in his. And we can try to decide who God is all day, but God's not going to change his nature. He's not going to change his will. He's not going to change his commandments. And if we're going to offer our worship to God, we need to know who he is, not who we think he is. So Romans chapter 15 and 4 says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So we're going to look at some Old Testament stories for a few minutes this, this morning and look at what happened there because what we're going to do is we're going to get a picture of who God is. And I hope that by the end of our lesson this morning that we all leave here with a better understanding of who God is. Now, are we going to talk about every part of God's nature this morning? No, but I think that some of these stories are very important, that God inspired them to be written for our learning, as Paul writes here, and that we can look at these things and we can get a better picture of who God the Father is. So I want to start in Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah is told by God, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and in the south and the lowland were inhabited? So he's referring back to the time that they spent in Babylonian captivity. And he says, I know that you were fasting. I know you were crying out to me. I know that you were praying. But did you do that for you or did you do that for me? You know, this is a trap we can fall in. And it's a trap they fell in. Sometimes we can create the illusion of worship and really be doing it for ourselves and not for God. And the truth is, they were crying out to God. They were fasting, but God says, who was that for? That's a very important question when you think about worship. Is that for you or is that for me? Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7 Jesus said this, he said, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You know what Jesus is saying here? When they did that, they did that for them, not for me. They did it for themselves. He said, Oh yeah, their mouth's moving, and it's saying all the right words, but he says, I know their heart. And if their mouth is moving and their heart is far, what does that render the worship? Empty and useless. That's what he said. It's empty. It's useless. You know why? Because what they were doing was putting on a performance. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6. We don't have this on the screen. But, but he told them, don't do your alms, your charitable deeds before men to be seen by men. He said, do them in privately that your reward will come from God who sees in secretly and he will reward you openly. He said, you know why they like to do their deeds before men? So they can get the thunderous applause of other men. So why were they doing that? Were they doing that for God? No, he says they were doing it for them. Worship's not about us. Worship is about God and God's greatness. It's not about our greatness. It's not about our talents. It's not about our abilities. 
It's about recognizing and professing and proclaiming who God is and who we are in his sight. And these people's heart was not right. Sincerity matters to God. It matters to God. Just going through the motions is not worship. It may be worship, but as Jesus said, it's empty worship. The heart has to be engaged. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 14, this shows us something about observance and about sincerity. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Now, I want to ask you a question. I'm not looking for a verbal response here, but who was it that told them to observe new moons and appointed feasts? It was Moses, right? Okay, now they're living in the mosaical dispensation of time. God's the one that commanded them to keep new moons and feasts. You know what God said? He said, I hate it. That's peculiar, isn't it? Why would God hate something he commands? He didn't. This is what he hated. He said, when you spread out your hands, okay, think about this. When you spread out your hands, he said, I'm going to cover my face. I don't want to look at you. He says, in fact, even though you make many prayers, I'm not going to listen. You know why? He said, because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil from your doing from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And here's what God is saying, I hate your worship. I hate your worship because you serve sin and not me. We cannot expect to walk out these doors and Monday through Saturday reject and rebel against God and come in here and expect him to be happy with our worship. We can't practice and live in sin and let sin reign in our heart and then think God is going to be impressed when we lift out our hands and our prayers to him. He's not. And if we think that he is, we know not what we worship because that's not who God is. This is not the entirety of our relationship with God. As Nathan and I both mentioned, this is the best day of the week. But this isn't the entirety of our relationship with God. He expects us to walk out those doors and go into our house and take him with us and live for him every single day. And if we don't live for him and we serve our own desires, if we serve our own lusts, if we live in sin and we reject God, when we come in here, it's empty and it's useless. God doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't want to see it. And that's exactly what he told Israel. Put away the evil. Cease to do sin. Otherwise, I, it's, it's just an endurance test for him. Worship is meant to glorify God. And he says, I am sick of it. I'm sick of it. But you know, that's really not enough. Just living a moral life is not enough. We see in 2 Chronicles 26 about a man named Uzziah. Uzziah was a king, and it says when Uzziah was 16 years old, he became king, and he reigned 52 years. That's a long time to be a king. I mean, Solomon, 40 years. Saul, 40 years. David, 40 years. This, 52 years this man reigned as king. And listen to what it says about him. It says, his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. You know what? If we stop the story right there and we just thought about Uzziah, we would go, all right, good job, Uzziah. Good job. But you know, the story doesn't stop there. We're going to skip down just a little bit later in the chapter where we see a change happen in Uzziah. In verse 16, it says, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. I want to stop right there for just a moment and really think about those words. When he was strong, his heart was lifted up. Here's what it's saying. When his kingdom was strong, he was filled up full of pride. That's what it means. Notice, to his destruction. 
For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Do you think Uzziah was sincere? Yeah, and he lived a moral life. We have a saying, and maybe some of you have heard this and some of you haven't, but we've got a saying, you got too big for your britches. You got too big for your britches. Uzziah got too big for his britches. You know why? Because power often corrupts men. And Uzziah got full of pride, and he decided, I'm going to go do something, even though I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it. Why? I'm the king. I'll do what I want. And he walks right into the temple and starts to make an offering. Here's the problem. It says he was not consecrated. He was not consecrated. What does that word consecrated mean? It means set apart for that service. You may be the king and you may make a lot of judgments and decisions and you have a lot of authority and power, but you are not set apart to do this. And the the priest withstood the king. Valiant men withstood a king and they said, get out. This is wrong. You can't do this. You can't do this, Uzziah. You know what God did? He gave Uzziah leprosy. He lived the rest of his life as a leper. You know what that means? It means from that point on, he had no social interaction, no human contact, and had to live his life in isolation. For one moment in his life, when he lifted up full of pride, did something that displeased God. That's who God is. That's who God is. Jesus was crushed for our sin. He was crushed for our sin. The Father crushed his Son for our sin, and we think God's going to give us a pass if we reject him and we rebel against him. This is rebellion is what it is. It's not a a sin of ignorance. It's a sin of rebellion. He rebelled against God, and God was displeased. He had no favor, no honor. Listen to them. You have no honor from the Lord for this sacrifice. Why did he do it? I don't know. All it tells us is he was lifted up full of pride. 1 Samuel chapter 13. I want to give this just a a little bit of context before we read this passage. Uh, So Samuel is the prophet of God at this time. And Samuel has anointed Saul to be king in Israel. And Saul is going out and he is fighting battles against the Philistines. And the Philistines were wicked people. I mean, they were idolaters. They were trying to destroy Israel at at, at every turn. And so God is with Saul and with the soldiers. And they're going out and they're fighting against the Philistines. And they come up on this situation where 2,000 men go with Saul and 1,000 with Jonathan. And all of a sudden, the Philistines hear about it, and they amass this giant army to come against Saul and Jonathan. And it, it, the way the Bible words it in this chapter is that there was as many men as the, the sand of the sea. So they had this giant army coming against 3,002 people. Would you be worried? They were. They ran. I mean, all of the soldiers, they ran, and they went and hid. They're, we're not fighting all these. There's too many. And so Saul, being the king, he feels responsible for this situation. He's looking out and he's going, the people are scattered from me. What am I going to do? Well, he's waiting on Samuel because what Samuel's going to come do is he's going to come make an offering to the Lord and make reconciliation to God, and then God's going to give them favor so they can go fight this battle because God is who they depended on to win these battles for them. And Saul knows this. So Saul, in his desperation, decides to make this offering to God because he's tired of waiting on Samuel to get there. What's the problem? Saul is not consecrated. He's not a priest. He's not allowed to make this offering. Why is he doing it? He's worried about his soldiers. He's worried about them dying at the hands of the Philistines. He's trying to reconcile to God. All these things are good, right? They're good intentions. What happens? Samuel said, what have you done? 
And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down at me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul, uh, Samuel, or Saul rather, immediately begins to make excuses for himself. He says, well, let's just think about this rationally. This is what I was thinking when I did this. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. That's what he's thinking about. Samuel, I got tired of waiting on you. So I took it into my own hands. I knew that I felt compelled. You know what that means? I was desperate. The King James words it this way. I forced myself. It almost sounds like an out-of-body experience, doesn't it? I forced myself to do this thing. It was necessity. It was my only option. And Samuel said, you acted foolishly. That's what you did. You disobeyed God is what you did. Your intentions didn't matter. Your sincerity didn't matter. Your care for all these people didn't matter. You should have done what God said. You know, this is the only time we see this in, in Saul's life. We have another story in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where uh, Saul is told to go and... Whoops, push the wrong button there. He's told to go and just totally obliterate a people, the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were actually distant kinsmen of the Israelites. But the Amalekites, being the descendants of Esau, they fell into idolatry. They became wicked and violent people. They would plague Israel. And God got sick of it. And he said, Saul, I want you to go kill them all. Men, women, children, livestock, don't leave anything alive. I want you to completely obliterate the Amalekites. And Saul and the people, they go in, they kill everybody except for the king. So they leave one person alive. And then they start looking at the livestock and they say, some of this livestock's pretty good. And so they destroy all the bad livestock, but they bring all the best or the choicest livestock back. And so Saul is proud of himself. He is proud of himself. And when Samuel finally comes to where he is, this is what Samuel went to Saul. And Saul said to him, blessed are you, the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. Now, let's think about this. Did Saul perform the commandment of the Lord? Eh, kind of. <laughs> sort of. What does Saul think, though? He thinks, I did exactly what God said. And Samuel says, then why do I hear sheep and oxen? If you did what God said, then why do I hear sheep and oxen? Then Samuel said to Saul, after Saul started making more excuses, he said, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. And Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, let's stop right there. What's caused this problem? Pride. He says, when you were little in your own eyes. He says, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy. That means completely, utterly, completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, listen, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and got on the mission which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalekak. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He just don't get it. He just doesn't get it, does he? He says, I did what God said. He said, no, you didn't do what God said. You did most of what God said. You did most of what God said. You know what partial obedience is in the eyes of the Lord? Disobedience. That's what it is. It's disobedience. Saul did a lot of what God expected him to do. He killed everybody except the king. God didn't say save the king. He didn't say, I want the best of the livestock, because that's what Saul's excuse was. He said, well, you know, the people thought it was a good idea, which didn't matter because you're the king. The people wanted to bring all the best back to make sacrifice to God. Samuel says, no, God said, 
utterly destroy. That's what he said. It's plain, right? He drew it in crayon, utterly destroy. But Saul finally gets it. He finally gets it, but only after Samuel says this. Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice is in obeying the voice of the Lord better? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. This is what Samuel says to Saul. Making a sacrifice is good in the eyes of God, but making a sacrifice is not okay when it's a disobedient sacrifice. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. He says it's better to listen. That's what he said. It's better to listen. That was Saul's problem. He and his pride didn't listen to what God was saying. He heard him, but he didn't listen. Why? Because Saul thought, I'm going to do God's will. I'm just going to do God's will my way. <laughs> listen to what he says in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. He said, Saul, what you've done, you might as well have spit in God's face and built an idol. You've rebelled against God. You've rebelled. This is as bad as if you would have made another God. You know why? Because that's essentially what he did anyway. And he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Now listen to verse 24. Saul finally gets it. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now we get the picture. He knew he didn't obey God. You know what he did? He did what the people wanted. He was afraid of the people. He feared the people more than he feared God. And now his heart is just opening up. And he's admitting it. This is why I did it. I was afraid, but it didn't save him. First Corinthians chapter thir- uh, First Corinthians, First Chronicles rather, chapter 13. Another very familiar story that we see in the Old Testament is that of Uzzah. And Uzzah was not a wicked person by any means. We don't read anything about Uzzah being a wicked person. But what we see is a situation where people didn't follow the pattern that God had set forth, costing a man his life. It says, And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out for our brethren everywhere who are left in the land of Israel, and with them the priests and Levites who are in the cities and their common lands, that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that, it would, that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people." So they made this majority rules decision. All the people said, this is the right thing to do. And you know what? They, need, they did need to bring the ark back to Israel because that was where they made atonement. Every year they were to go make atonement. They have done this for years because it's been hidden uh, in this house of this man, Abinadab, and his son is Uzzah. He had two sons there, and one of them is Uzzah. And Uzzah is actually going to go back with them and ride on this cart that they decided to move the ark on. So then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps and stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore that place is called Perez Uzzah. To this day, let's just try to picture ourselves in this situation as everybody is playing all these instruments and making this joyful noise to the Lord, which was fine to do for them. Glorify God with everything you've got. And all of a sudden, the Ark of the Covenant begins to shake and looks like it's going to fall. Put yourself in a situation. What do you do? What would you do if you're sitting next to the Ark of the Covenant and it starts to fall off of this cart? 
I know what I'm doing, right? We do that for a lot less important items. A plate goes sliding off the table. It's just reaction, right? That's probably all this was, was just a reaction with good intentions. And God smote him dead. Why? Because that ark should have never been on that cart. God told him, this is how you move the ark. The Levites, the sons of Kohath, move the ark. And the only way they do it is they take the rods that have been inlaid with gold and you run them through the rings and don't you touch that ark. Don't touch it. And David's mad. He's, who's he mad at? He's mad at God. Why? Because God killed Uzzah. If David wanted to be mad at somebody, he should have been mad at himself. Because he's the king. He's responsible for what's going on here. And a man lost his life. Why? Because they ignored God. They didn't listen. And God was displeased. You know, this looks like it would be in a tent somewhere, but this is not. These are in geographical locations designed for the worship of God. What's happened? What's happening today in our world? And my question is just very simple. I'm not here to judge these people. I'm not here to judge your heart. I don't know your heart. I know my heart, and you know your heart. I don't know these people's hearts, but, but I just want to ask a simple question. Who's this for? You know, years ago, we lived in East Texas, and I met a man at a wedding. I was preaching a wedding, and uh, they had hired a guy to come sing. And this guy was on, I think he was on Nashville Star. He was on one of those TV shows where uh, the talented people go and they compete. And I'm telling you, this guy was very talented. I mean, very good singer, beautiful voice. And I was going through town one day, and I saw a flyer up, and it says, come hear the music of Casey Rivers this Sunday. And it was their church service. And I just thought, this is their draw. Let's come, come see this man. Come enjoy his talent. Look, if, if we come to a church service because we're wanting to see some man and, and enjoy his talent, we know not what we worship. That's not what it's about. It's not about celebrating some, and I like this guy, by the way. He's a really nice guy. I like this guy. But that's not what worship is about. It's not about glorifying men. It's about glorifying God. Something that's drastically changed in the last 50 years is the preaching in America has become what we would really call an Americanized gospel. We, you say, what do you mean an Americanized gospel? I don't, I don't mean it's, anti, or it's patriotic or anything like that. What I mean is it only works in America. You can't preach this stuff in Africa. It's not going to draw a crowd of 50,000 people for you to get up and tell people that God's going to get them a big mansion if they'll follow him. It doesn't work. Because it's an Americanized gospel. It's a secular gospel. And the question is, why? Why are we doing this? I'll tell you why. Because people love it. We're doing it for the people. And that's what's happening. We're starting to worship people. We're going to mic up the best singers. Why? Because quality matters. Well, who's it matter to? Does it matter to God or does it matter to us? And who are we trying to please? God or people? What is worship? I'll tell you what worship is not. It's not when you clap your hands at my efforts. Or when I clap my hands at yours. Worship is not when I'm happy with what you're doing because it makes me happy. Are we doing that for God or are we doing it for us? Can you tell the difference? You say, well, you color-coded it for us, so it's kind of a dead giveaway. Well, I actually did that throw you off. It's the opposite. They, they don't look much different, do they? And again, I'm not here to judge these people. I just want to ask, why are we doing these things? Why? Did God ask for light shows? Did he ask for smoke machines? Did he ask for rock and roll? Did he ask for popular music? Did, what did God ask for? Are we listening? Or are we just doing what the people want? Famous writer A.W. Tozer, I don't often quote men, but he said, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the world around us more than the Christ within us. And I want to say amen to that. Amen to that. And I'll tell you why we're doing these things. Because we've decided who God is and what he wants. And the truth is, if it's about the people, and that's what we're trying to do is please people, we know not what we worship. Paul said this, for am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be the servant of Christ. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying don't consider people. We have to consider people. In fact, our worship is to edify one another. We have to consider that, right? But when I lose this and I'm all about this, that's not worship. It's not worship. So I just want to leave you with a few questions this morning as we end our study. When we come in here and we're gathered together, are we worshiping God? I think we've got a picture of what that looks like, what it means to worship God. Or are we worshiping others? Or maybe we're not worshiping others. Maybe we're worshiping ourselves. You say, how do we worship ourselves? You ever come to an assembly and left mad because something didn't go your way? I'll just be honest with you. I have. I've left upset because something didn't go my way. I mean, when I was younger, I asked somebody to lead a song. They wouldn't lead the song. I was mad at them. They didn't lead the song I wanted. Who cares? It's not about you. Well, I wish old so-and-so was preaching today. I like his preaching better. Maybe you're thinking that right now. Well, who cares? <laughs> it's not about us, is it? The question we ought to ask is, was their message true? Was it edifying? Well, okay, well, who cares if we like another guy better? Sometimes we just make things about ourselves. And I'll tell you, this may seem like a bizarre question, but I don't think it'll be that bizarre when I explain it. Sometimes we just worship the worship. Okay, I'm not tracking. You know, I speak this to my shame. There's songs in this book that I've been singing for 40 years. 40 years. And I'm just learning what those songs are about. You know why? I'm a music guy. I love music. Y'all already know this, but I love music. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest joys that I get in life is when we're lifting up our voices together and that four-part harmony is just right. It gives me chills. I love it. But sometimes I love it a little too much. And I'm focused on how good the song sounds and what the rhythm is like. Not really focusing my heart upon the object of that worship. I'm just worshiping the worship. You know what Jesus called that? Empty and useless. The mouth's moving. It's near. It's saying the right things. But what do you say? The heart is far. It's far. You know, let's be real careful not to worship the worship. Sometimes we've prided ourselves in the function, the form rather, of our worship. That we don't do it this way. And we can do that and worship the worship and not worship the God that is the object of that worship. We have to be very careful that when we come in here, we don't come in here with the wrong heart. We don't come in here with the right attitude and that we're actually worshiping God. I want to leave you with one passage today from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took each of them his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he commanded them. Not commanded them, rather. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. You know, there's a lot of things going on that are right here. Number one, these men are in the right place. These men are consecrated for this service. They've been designated to make this offering. And they come to the right place with fire and with incense and their censer, and they're going to make an offering to God, and God killed them. Why? One seemingly small detail. You know what it was? God told them, use holy fire. You know what they used? Regular fire. Regular fire. You know what he didn't say? He said, don't use this fire, don't use that fire. He didn't say none of that. He didn't tell them where not to get their fire. All he told them was, this is where you get your fire. You get it out from under the altar. And the interesting thing is, the fire that was under the altar that they neglected is the fire that took their life. You know why? Because this is who God is. God is holy. God is holy. You know what he's asked for from us? A holy offering. You say, I'm not sure I can give that. Yeah, you can. Because I'll tell you what he wants. He wants your life. He wants your heart. He wants your humility. And he wants your voice. That's what he wants. He wants you to listen. 
That's what God wants. That's not difficult, is it? If we listen to God with the right heart and we offer him our heart and our mouth, he is pleased, he is glorified, he is happy with our worship. Today, if you're here and you're not consecrated for the service of God, if you're not a Christian today, we want to encourage you to become one. Because God wants you to have the purpose of glorifying him in your life. That's what we're called to. He says you're a chosen generation, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God wants to set you apart for his glory. Maybe you're here today and you are a Christian. and Maybe you're just like me. And sometimes you just go through the motions. And maybe you've been doing that for a long time. And you just want prayer. We're not here to judge you. We're just here to help you. If you have a need this morning, come and have a seat as we stand and we sing.